Welcome. This is David Barris, President of the American Association of Bank Directors. This is another episode of our Calling All Bank Directors podcast. The subject today is what should a bank board do once it decides to sell the bank? Dave Martin will join us again to share his experience with these issues with numerous bank and bank board clients. We welcome any questions or suggestions you might have. My email address is dbarris at aabd.org. All right, let's call Dave. Hello, Dave. Good morning. Let's assume the board of directors of a bank has approved the sale of its bank and has asked the CEO for a plan to accomplish that. The CEO calls you and asks how to go about that. What would be your response? And also address the role of the board or board committee in overseeing the process. Well, you're off to a good start, or it's a good start if the board's decision was unanimous. If the vote wasn't unanimous, go back and try to make it unanimous. A lone holdout can cause problems later in the negotiations. By the way, that's true for buyers or sellers. Um, Let's talk for a minute about today's market. COVID-19, the pandemic, affects everything, including bank earnings and bank stock prices. And of course, it affects earnings and prices. It also affects the merger market. For the past couple years, there have generally been between 30 and 40 bank deals announced every month until this last February when there were 19 deals. That fell to 15 deals in March and down to 10 in April and six so far in May. There has been at least one unannounced uh, one announced deal that has been canceled, and I'm sure there will be more. And I'd guess that many deals that were close to announcement were scrubbed, either by the terms of the merger agreement or by mutual agreement of the two parties. Does the pandemic create opportunities? Sure, for buyers. Prices are low, but as a buyer, if you intend to use your stock, your stock price is probably low too. So all of that suggests that this could be a good time to buy using cash. But unless you're overcapitalized, using cash will limit the size of the deal you can do. So the pandemic offers a good opportunity for buyers to do small cash deals. And of course, failed banks. But we'll talk about buying failed banks in another podcast. But let's talk, let's talk post-COVID-19, after the pandemic, and assume that eventually prices and markets will get back to normal. Actually, I'll, I doubt that prices will get all the way back to pre-pandemic levels, so there may be a new normal. But we're going to devote this blog, this podcast to sellers. We'll talk about buyers in a later podcast. If you decided to sell the bank, that decision may have been the result of a formal strategic planning process. Here are a couple more items that might have come out of that same planning session. New branches. I don't know a single community bank that isn't planning to open one or more new branches. Stop. If you haven't bought the land or signed a lease, don't. If you've bought the land, don't start construction. You get the point. Some initiatives that would be the normal output of a strategic plan may become costly if you're planning to sell your bank. Here's another example. 
if you have an unfilled senior position in the bank, leave it unfilled for obvious reasons. Also, take a look at, and this is very important, at your major service contracts that may be coming up for renewal. A long-term IT contract is a good example. If you believe the bank will be sold in 12 or even 24 months, don't renew an IT contract for seven years. It's common sense. A high cancellation penalty will reduce the value of your bank. Next item. Maybe this should have been the first item. Emphasize to your board the critical need for confidentiality. This means everybody, including spouses. Lots of bad things can happen if parties outside your boardroom learn about your plans to sell. For example, your employees might hear about your intentions with all kinds of consequences. Obviously, they'll have to hear about it eventually, but at the right time. Or an unwanted suitor, suitor, an unwanted acquirer may enter the picture. How bad is that? There must have been some good reason that you didn't want a particular buyer. Or another example, your stock price might start to run up, which could have the effect of upsetting a deal you hope to do. Those problems come quickly to mind. I'm sure there are others. David, do you want to add some others? Yes, Dave. Uh, there's a risk of insider trading, uh, and that increases when more people know about what's going on. So for those who do know, there should be a period where they cannot, it should be told not to trade. And to keep the number of people to uh, as small a group as possible, employees can leave, customers can leave if the news gets out too early. And in some cases, the media can also play a role. So keep a small controlled circle of people who are essential to the process. Well, that's very good advice. Let's stay on the subject of your board. A lot depends on your directors and how much you want to involve them in the sale process. For example, I think you'd want to know if any director would want to rule out any specific buyer, perhaps for a very good reason, maybe not even a good reason. But you might be surprised if you got that news just at the time when that unwanted buyer shows up with the highest bid. While I'm on the subject of your board's participation in the sale process, you might want to name a special smaller committee, including only independent directors, to oversee the sale process. The next piece of advice will be hard for you to accept, but here goes. Do a serious due diligence examination on your own bank. That's what I said, a self-due diligence. Think about all aspects of your bank's operations and all of its relationships with the outside world. Think about your board minutes. A buyer will expect to read them. Think about your relations with your regulator. Think about any unresolved financial, regulatory, credit, or litigation issues. Can any of them be resolved quickly, even if not perfectly? Think about how any of them could paint an inaccurate picture of your bank for a prospective buyer. In other words, tidy up the place. The next item may seem trivial. It's not. Think about your credit files. Are they in a condition you'd want a prospective buyer to see? Because the buyer will see them in due diligence. 
and the buyer will form an opinion of your underwriting ability, partly based on what he sees in those files. Also, the information in the files can be a factor in the buyer's mark-to-market of your loan portfolio. Summarizing all that, just find and fix those items that are easily fixed or resolved. What about an investment banker? I think most sellers of any size would be more comfortable with an investment banker on their side. Any of dozens of firms would be glad to have the, the assignment. There are lots of issues you'll want where you'll want a professional opinion, and there will be moments in the negotiation when you'd rather have someone else take a hard stand or deliver a complaint to someone who's going to be your colleague or maybe even your boss uh, until you retire. How much will an investment banker cost? Ask the question and then ask for fees that they and other investment bankers have charged sellers in similar transactions that you're familiar with. I don't want to suggest a price range because I'm no longer immediately in the business, and I know that fees change over time. Smaller sellers pay a larger percentage than larger sellers for obvious reasons. Next question. Should you get a fairness opinion regarding the value of the transaction? I think as a seller you should. Does a fairness opinion guarantee that your shareholders, what your shareholders receive is fair? I'd rather answer a different question. Does the fairness opinion say that the price is fair from a financial point of view? Yes. What does that mean, financial point of view? It means that the price you received was similar to prices paid in similar transactions. It doesn't address, for example, the fact that staff reductions in your deal may be high in comparison with other similar deals, or that employee benefits in the surviving bank aren't as good as yours or a dozen other differences. But there's one important benefit of the fairness opinion. It guarantees that you'll have professional support on your side if one of your shareholders sues you because he thinks the price was too low. I think there was a case that established the legal rules around fairness opinions, but that's as far as my knowledge goes. Would you like to expand on that, David? There are lawsuits that are filed, uh, class action suits, in in the circumstances where a merger is announced. And uh, the cases uh, revolve around the a duty of care and duty of loyalty of a, of a bank board. And so there are different measuring uh, measuring standards that the, the, uh, that the uh, court will go through, evaluation, and certainly a fairness opinion would be of great assistance to a bank that was defending such a, a lawsuit. Thank you. Let's stay on the subject of investment bankers for a minute. How do you choose an investment banker? Chances are you know several firms and probably do bond purchases and sales with one or more firms. And the M&A guys from a couple firms probably call on you regularly and maybe even entertain you at conventions, etc. So they aren't strangers. One piece of advice, though, be sure you know and are comfortable with the actual banker who will hold your hand through the deal. Am I saying be on the lookout for bait and switch? Well, yes. The charming guy, the gray-haired gent with the bow tie and the low golf handicap may not be the person who will handle your deal. 
find out who will actually be handling your deal and make sure you're comfortable with him or her. Every firm will be willing to tell you about transactions similar to yours that they've managed, so ask them. And in any case, those deals are a matter of public record. What about lawyers? This may be trickier. The buyer's law firm typically volunteers to prepare the merger agreement, but your lawyer will have to respond to it. If your bank's counsel is a real estate or bankruptcy lawyer or even a bank regulatory expert, he or she or their firm may not be experienced in mergers and acquisitions, and they may have a hard time admitting that. This may require an uncomfortable heart-to-heart discussion with your lawyer who may be a good friend, but this is no time for an amateur. Having an inexperienced lawyer on your side can be very dangerous. David, can you add something on that subject? Yes, it's normally preferred to have an attorney experienced in bank mergers to be on your side. Bank mergers are not just corporate mergers, but they also entail regulatory involvement. An experienced and fairly priced attorney will likely save a lot of money and time as long as the other side also has one. The next item for you as a seller is to figure out what kind of transaction you want, a negotiated deal or an auction. If you've known for a quarter century that it was inevitable that you and your good friend Bank X would merge someday, you'll probably want to do just that in a one-on-one negotiation. It'll be up to your investment banker and lawyer to make sure that you get a fair price and a fair merger agreement. Or... Your investment banker may try to dissuade you from doing a one-on-one deal on the basis that your good friend simply may not be able to pay a full price. In that case, the investment banker will urge you to do an auction. I think investment bankers prefer auctions. When I was representing sellers, I preferred auctions. When I was representing buyers, I preferred negotiated deals. David, do you want to add anything on that subject? Yes, there is some case law that suggests that if you're doing a cash-only deal, that an auction should be done or must be done. Uh, If it's a stock deal or partially stock, there seems to be uh, a differentiation among the, the cases that would suggest an auction would not be required. Getting back to the process, Uh, Once you've hired your investment banker, you'll see that things will begin to move fast, very fast. If you're wondering whether there really are potential buyers out there, your investment banker will quickly come up with a surprisingly long list of buyers. It will surprise you how fast they can put that list together. Then in short order, your banker will produce an information package, the book on your bank, sometimes called the Confidential Information Memorandum. I'll just call it the book. And your banker will be ready to hand it out as soon as you give the go-ahead. It'll all happen fast. Why so fast? One reason, of course, may be that the investment banker gets paid when your bank gets sold. But there's there's a more virtuous reason, the real reason. Time is your enemy in an auction. All of the recipients of your book 
will have signed a non-disclosure agreement forbidding them from disclosing the fact that your bank is for sale. But you know what happens. Some of the banks receiving your book were probably just curious and were unlikely buyers. They were just kicking the tires. Others who might have been serious prospects may decline after studying the book. Both groups are sources of possible leaks in spite of having signed a non-disclosure agreement. And as time goes on, they feel more comfortable about sharing that very confidential information. Back to the book. What's in the book? Everything a buyer needs to know, except for confidential information, but enough information that will tell a prospective buyer, number one, whether he wants to buy your bank, and number two, how much he'd be prepared to pay. The prospective buyer will give you what the lawyers will call a non-binding indication of interest, saying how much the buyer would be prepared to pay. How's that possible so fast? Well, it is. Remember that the only important information that won't be in the book is confidential information, customer names, examination reports, etc. The buyer will see all of that in due diligence. One more important point, the buyer's incentive to offer a competitive bid at that first level is that if he doesn't, he won't be invited to the second round. If he low if he lowballs, he's out. Let's assume that you've preliminarily accepted one of the bids and the prospective buyer expects to the prospective buyer expects to perform a due diligence examination on your bank. Anybody would. We'll discuss the due diligence process in a later podcast, but it's important to say a few words about the seller's due diligence, your due diligence on the buyer, called reverse due diligence. The depth of your due diligence on the buyer will tend depend in part on the nature of the transaction. If the buyer will be paying cash, your main concern is determining whether the buyer will be able to complete the transaction. So you'll need to know whether there are any obstacles to the buyer's performance. For example, any regulatory issues. You'll need to be ready to ask questions and see appropriate evidence to satisfy yourself on that point. If the buyer is much larger and more complex than your bank, you may want to engage an outside professional or several to help you. But if you're expecting to receive the buyer's stock as all or part of your consideration, in effect, you're going to be buying the buyer's bank as much as he's buying yours, and your reverse due diligence will be need to be much more comprehensive, and you'll probably want to engage out, outside professionals to help because you'll be looking at a much larger bank probably than your own. In short, you'll want to know almost as much about the buyer's bank as the buyer wants to know about your bank. As I said before, we'll cover due diligence in later podcast. Oh, let me mention one other, other thing while we're talking about consideration. This is obvious, but it's probably not necessary to point out the tax advantage of stock versus cash consideration particularly if you have some shareholders with a very low basis in your stock, and that's often the case in community banks. I've mentioned speed a few times, the speed of the process. It always surprises me, and it will surprise you. From the moment you hire your investment bankers, things will move fast. That means you better be very confident that you want to go through with the sale. 
You want to be sure that every member of your board is on board, every member. Also, it would be good if you had a picture of your current market conditions before you hire your investment banker so that you'd have some idea what your bank is worth in a change of control. There's a whole list of issues that you should be very confident about because, as I've said before, once you start the ball rolling, things will happen fast. And obviously, selling the bank is an irreversible action. If you're if your decision to sell the bank was a conclusion of a strategic planning process, which it often is, it might be a good idea to run through that part of the process again, just with your board and not all of the other people involved in the planning process. If you had a trusted third party helping you in that planning process, it might be a good idea to get him or her back for a review of just that part. And as I said before, maybe just for the board or even a smaller part of the board. Good luck. You get to do this only one time. David, that's all I have. We'll cover the buyer side in a future podcast. Thank you again, Dave.